this is Decoding Learning Differences with Kimberly and LaBelle, and this episode is Behavior Difficulties Part 2 with Michelle Schilbach. So if you have not listened to last week's episode with Michelle Schilbach, please go back and listen. You need to hear that to be able to really understand and grasp this week's episode. This week we're going into Oppositional Defiance Disorder and um, Pathological Demand Avoidance, and kind of teasing those out a little bit, the differences between them, how we might work with kids with who have those difficulties, and it does rely on knowledge from the previous episode. So you're not going to get as much out of this if you haven't heard that previous one. That previous one is full of great information about behavior in general, and also talks about oppositional defiance disorder and pathological demand avoidance and kind of defines those. So go back and listen. If you have listened, enjoy this episode. We talk about that ODD in the PDA like I talked about. We also talk about extrinsic motivation and when that is helpful, beneficial, what, what, how to make that work effectively. And as you know, I'm kind of always talking against punishments and rewards and which includes praise. Um, and we kind of tease that out a little bit and it might challenge um, your thinking on it a little bit in a different way. Um, Cause she's a, she's a fan, but not in the way that I am most against. So definitely have a listen. Enjoy another great episode with Michelle Schilbach. Welcome back to the podcast, Michelle. I am so excited to have you back. We are so excited to have you back. We last time we were talking about a bunch of things of behavior. We went through your whole visual and we ended on this conversation about oppositional defiance disorder mm -hmm. and ODD and pathological demand avoidance, PDA. And we kind of just touched on what they were and what they looked like. And it, you know, there was so much more I wanted to dive into with that. So I want to spend some time today going into that. And I want to start with what is the difference between them? Now, I know you said that ODD is more associated with ADHD and PDA is more associated with autism. Mm -hmm. But other than that, what is there a difference in how they look or? It's a great question. Are? Yeah, great question. So I think the, there's a few keys to think about. PDA is not a DSM-5 diagnosis, right? So it's still very controversial within North America, whereas in the UK, it's quite, it's, it's quite, um, the research is starting to emerge, but it's not robust yet for in North America as to say PDA is, is its own entity. So for PDA, it's almost the way some people describe some individuals who are autistic in how they respond to authority, how they respond to demands, instructions. Um, so that's why it's still not widely used in North America as your child has pathological demand avoidance. Um, it's kind of used as a way to describe many autistics, not all autistics. Um, so it's largely within that scope where oppositional defiance disorder has, we've seen some relationship between ODD and ADHD. 
but you can have oppositional defiance disorder as its own diagnosis. So children can receive an ODD diagnosis. Um, and that is recognized internationally as a researched evidence-based um, diagnosis. So it, it, it often can be seen in ADHD because the ADHD symptomology is not treated or those skills are not being developed. And so then children can become more oppositional. So the way I sometimes think about it, and you have a background in just education and learning is you think, think about it this way for ODD, the longer a child goes with um, skills not being developed, academic skills, social skills, executive function skills, the more they will engage in emotional responses to those demands, right? So when placed with a reading task, and they've gone years now where they can't do that task or a social task or, you know, a re impulse regulation demand being put on them that they just simply can't do. They're going to, over time, become more explosive in their responding because it's the safest way they're learning to react to those demands, right? So that's where we sort of see, we don't see children at two getting an ODD diagnosis. We see children as they're getting older and older getting this mm -hmm. diagnosis. Does that make so sense? It's more of like a response to life. Can be, yeah. Okay. So is there a reason that they don't use ODD? Is there a reason they're using PDA instead of ODD for those with autism? Ah, right. So PDA has its own sort of subset criteria that we're looking at. So, and I've got notes, that's why I keep, otherwise I'm going to, you know, spiral like we did last time into yeah. tangents. Um, so it, often PDA is really, we're looking at, um, you know, aversion to authority. We're looking at challenges that th these individuals have with flexibility right? Um, uh, following someone else's plan. Um, it, it doesn't have, it's not been researched enough to have enough sort of criteria because ODD, ADHD, autism, those are all um, neuro, neurodivergent sort of diagnoses where there's assessment tools and checklists for criteria, right? So PDA doesn't have that yet. So when we can't, when you look at an autistic, that's why it's really controversial. When you look at a child with an autism diagnosis or an autistic and you say, wow, they're having a really hard time following class plans, right? Like think classroom-based. So class plans, teacher instructions, um, the group plan, then if unless they're meeting enough criteria for an ODD, they're going to slowly fall into this PDA where some psychologists will say, well, this child has PDA tendencies, right? Some will go as far as to say they have PDA, but it's not DSM-5 right. yeah. um, recognized. Does that, does that help sort of explain it a little bit more? So it's like um, ODD is gonna be more that really clear defiance, that uh, aggression, uh, those outbursts, right? Like that, uh, the resistance, PDA is truly, avoidance of demand, right? Um, in all ways, shapes and forms. 
So ODD is like more, more might be like more aggressive, more Tapping. visual, Mm -hmm. like you hear it, you feel it. Mm -hmm. And PDA might be just like ignoring or like a more quiet, like, yeah, I'm just not doing that. Oh, you could be aggressive, right? Okay. But so, so maybe let's kind of backtrack. If you think about PDA, we're only even considering if a child has an autism diagnosis. Right. So if a child doesn't have autism, PDA, pathological demand avoidance, isn't even really recognized on the table. People are already going down the tunnel of ODD if they're being, you know, aggressive, resistant to instruction, pushing against um, boundaries, right? Like that's the trajectory a pediatrician, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, they're gonna go down an ODD route. If you're in the UK and you have autism and you start presenting with ODD traits, there are many in the UK who will say, this isn't ODD, this is pathological demand avoidance, right? Um, it's a way of describing a subset of skills that these individuals are presenting with. Because, um, I don't know, you, if you start to read the, our research articles, a lot of people will say things like, who are against PDA, it's autism, right? It's, it's just how some people with autism respond to demand and it doesn't need its own subset. Uh, if you really speak to autistics, they'll say to you, no, that's not the case. I truly physiologically have a hard time. I know I need to follow that instruction, but I'm having a really hard time, right? So, um, but the research isn't there to support it as a diagnosis, whereas ODD, if a child meets enough of that complex behavior profile kit, they might get an ODD diagnosis. So I think about school-aged kids who don't have ADHD, who don't have a diagnosis, but they're behavioral problematic in the classroom, right? Disruptive, that we start to look at if you have disruptive complex behaviors, are you meeting enough criteria now for this DSM-5 recognized diagnosis of oppositional defiance disorder? Okay, so... Uh I guess then the next question going off of that is, does it matter mm. or do you use the same strategies for both? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Relatively speaking, um, if you recognize PDA as its own or not, definitely there's a subset of strategies we know that work better for children with oppositional defiance disorder. So it is good for a child to have that diagnosis. You know, there's a lot of families that will say, you know, why a diagnosis? How does that help? It helps us understand. And if we understand, then we may look at different strategies to support, right? So we start to really focus on what is just good practice, being curious, with kids showing interest, being aware, and then really focusing heavy choice making, um, a lot of making sure there's relationships first. Like these are, to me, it's not just ODD strategies, right? Like it's just good practice. If you're gonna place demands on a child, have a relationship with them first. And demands is, you know, 
for a lack of a better word, a demand is like, boys and girls, it's time to come for circle. That's a demand, right? Um, pull out your pencil for math. Those are demands. If I think about school-aged kids, right? So put on your shoes for recess, change your shoes to go outside for recess. Those are all demands. And so when kids aren't responding and we have adults who are going over asking them to do these things and they have no relationship with them, that already sets them up, especially if they're a child who meets that profile of oppositional defiance disorder, they're like, who are you? I don't know who you are. I'm quicker to be emotional. I have a harder time problem solving. My executive function isn't great. So now I'm like emotional responding, right? Like, um, so if, if you have that relationship first, then you can really build from there. That, if that makes sense. Yes. Okay. Um, Okay. So I was trying to think through like, cause last time you were talking about, um, how, how like you can't have a hard no with yeah. them. You've got to like, but you, you know, use the laws, the, like, not just a rule, but like the law, the, um, mm -hmm. can't remember if you used a different term also, but rules are meant to be bent. Yes. So, so I was trying to think about like, how does that look in the day to day? Like, if, if I want to get my kids out the door, mm -hmm. and I'm letting them know in the morning that, okay, this morning, we have to do the you know, we have to always we have the same things we do every morning to like get ready for the day, um, you know, get ourselves ready, eat breakfast. And then we have to be out the door because we're going um, to Nan and Grandpa's house or whatever. Like we're going to yeah. swim lessons. We're going. So I'm letting them know, like first thing in the morning or even the night before, that we're going to be doing it. And then as they're getting up and getting ready, I'm letting them know, okay, you got this done. You still have these things you need to get done. And then we're leaving mm -hmm. at this. You know, there's 30 minutes until we're leaving. There's you know, if you want to eat something, you really need to start eating now or you're not going to have anything to eat before we leave. Like, so I'm kind of like constantly trying to slowly guide them towards finishing all the things and then getting out the door, shoes on in the car. So how would that be different for someone who has a child with ODD or PDA? Okay, so great question. That's why I think I want you to think at least for PDA, think of it as it's a way to describe autistics who are really hyper pushback, right? Like hyper meaning quite intensely in their pushback and their oppositional nature, right? Um, oppositional defines to sort of the same. It's really, we're looking at understanding what they're doing. We're describing, ODD explains what they're doing. It doesn't explain why they're doing it. So even with these profiles, you still wanna understand why is your child having a hard time getting out the door to go to swim lessons? Like, what is that about? It's that their hard time looks a lot harder than a neurotypical child, right? So when you look at ODD, ODD on its own really starts to explain kids who are having a really a much harder time following those simple instructions where those generalized strategies we read about, we hear about, 
you know, use a first then schedule, you know, um, pair something more preferred to come after something less preferred. Those don't, those more traditional strategies don't always work because these kids have a more intensive pushback nature to what they are doing, right? Um, but we still need to understand why. Like ODD, it explains okay, there's a, there's a reason why my kid, I'm not going crazy as a parent or as an educator. There's a reason why this child's like this, right? If we don't have that, that label, unfortunately, then these kinds of kids, um, artistics who might be viewed with pathological demand avoidance, again, I always sort of preface, controversial, not fully recognized here, and ODD, um, these kids without diagnosis are viewed as disruptive, rude, um, they need more of a firm hand, you know, like this is the kind of stuff educators and parents here, you need to set more firm boundaries. You're too permissive as a parent. Um, you're not being clear in your instruction as an educator. If you were more clear, if you were more concise, your the student would respond or this student is manipulative. They know better, right? Like, and then reality, it's the furthest from the truth. So when I look at a child who has an ODD diagnosis, the first thing I'm doing is trying to help people understand why might they be exhibiting this profile? What is going on in their environment, right? Um, what other sub challenges might they, the underlying um, challenges might they be having? You know, ODD is sometimes looked to come in tandem with things like depression, ADHD, which we've talked about, like explosive um, disorder, uh, learning disabilities, right? Be and again, as I mentioned at the beginning, because that oppositional defiance becomes the mask to what's really behind what's going on for them, right? Um, neurotypical kids developmentally go through stages of pushback. That's normal. You have kids, I have a child, you know, all stages of life have incremental stages of I'm asserting my independence. I'm going to say no to you. Um, and that goes through until adulthood, right? Until they're really finished their teen years and they really have to kind of do it on their own with a, for lack of a better descriptor. So um, it's why I think it's important for us to recognize that, yeah, all kids are going to say no. All kids are going to sometimes say, I'm not putting my shoes on. I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. But neurotypical children when you hear these amazing strategies of like, I'm going to set a boundary. That means I'm going to let you know what I am going to do. I'm not going to tell you, you know, like all those beautiful things we hear these amazing psychologists and educators out there telling us to do. They're fantastic for neurotypical kids. If a child is uh, adverse to a demand and they have that ODD profile, then saying things like, I'm going to turn away and give you one more chance to do it on your own they're just gonna like take the remote and run, you know, instead of turning off the TV because you asked them to. They, they, we have to look at why is that so hard? What is going on for you? And is that related to lagging skills, which we talked a bit about last time or um, traits the, um, within their diagnoses that requires some more attention, right? Um, a lot of children with ODD also have ADHD and so their executive function, their impulse control, right? Their emotional regulation, their, um, 
their problem solving skills. All of these are things that require teaching, right? They're not going to just miraculously one day stop presenting with that subtype. So that leads me into kind of something else I wanted to talk about is um, those lagging skills. Like, are, are they learnable for those kids with ODD and PDA and even ADHD and the executive functioning things? To what degree are these lagging skills actually teachable to them, learnable by them? That, um, or are they things that need to be accommodated or... Do you know so, what I mean? I do. And I think it's, a, it's a bit of both. So I think when we're going to look at, you know, lagging skills for this profile of demand avoidance kid, right. Um, we're looking at a lot of areas of lagging skill. And so we're looking at, you know, executive function is its own podcast. I'm a big, I spend a lot of time in my practice working on executive function and working with kids with an ADHD diagnosis or children who just have executive dysfunction, right? Like areas of those 11 domains they're having a hard time with. And so my answer to you is yes, those are teachable skills. Um, are they mastered skills? Well, that's subjective, right? Um, I think you can ask a lot of adults with ADHD a lot of adults in general. I mean, I, I have a day timer. That's an executive function skill that keeps me organized. I have a watch that helps me with time management. Um, so we all live with prompts and tools to help us with our executive function. It's that if we are behind the starting line for using these tools, we might need extra teaching steps to get us to the steps that everybody else is using that the large portions of this, you know, the world use um, to support executive function, like time management strategies, you know, planning and prioritizing, emotional regulation, to what degree will always be rooted in why. We can't just teach a skill and not set kids up in their environments for success. So if I'm working on task initiation with a child who engages in a lot of demand avoidance, I need to make sure that the tasks being asked of them are developmentally fitting for them. So if they are dyslexic, we were talking about dyslexia, right? So if they're dyslexic, I can do all the teaching about task initiation I want with that student who's learned to engage in high intense bouts of demand avoidance, right? Um, or that oppositional you know, defiance piece. And so I can, teach them the skill, but if we keep giving them reading, that's not at their level, they're not going to learn those executive, they're not going to apply those executive function skills. It's not enough for us to teach. It has to be really team-based, right? When I talk to um, schools, I don't talk to teachers. I talk to education teams. An education team might be, you know, ed education assistants. It might include a principal a learning support teacher, um, at, at the actual classroom teacher. It might be a, a PE teacher. It might be the monitor who supports the student outside at recess. Like they should all be part of that so they know how to support the teaching. Because you asked me a question before about, you know, are there general strategies for this kind of profile of learner? Sure there are, right? Like let's not give too much choice right? Like, like, let's keep things with some limits 
Um, too much choice isn't always a great thing. We really want to avoid shaming and blaming. And these are kids who need fresh starts. Like they feel as bad about what they've just done when they flip a desk. They're not happy that they've done it. So they need those opportunities for fresh start and collaboration, right? Collaborative-based problem solving is really critical for this profile of kid. So they feel they have a voice, but you know, those are sort of those general pieces we look at, right? And then we have to also look at the lagging skills that I do believe can be taught. I think um, I can't change a home environment, right? If a home environment's playing into this, but I can create and support a school-based team to create a safe and secure environment for that learner to help them build trust to then accept choice and then work on teaching and learning those skills. But you have to sort of set foundation in place first to then build those skills. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, there's so many things that you were said. I'm like taking notes and trying to trying to think through my thoughts of. I think the thing that you keep going back to, um, which definitely makes sense, and it feels like something that I'm, I I've always seen too is, going back to like what is that root cause? Um, so then I'm thinking back to like the visual that we went through last time yeah. where we have to understand those roots to understand before we can go forward. Right. Um, cause everything there is, there is no like quick tips and tricks that are mm -hmm. going to work. It's every person is a human and individual and we have to, individualize how we are approaching it based on what their needs are and what what that actual problem is um and that was what we talked about last time with like when you're putting in um these extrinsic motivators that are only based on the branches of i want you to you know read this book here's a sticker chart for yeah. that you get a sticker when you read each page or whatever and but the kid's dyslexic and can't read the stickers don't help anything they just make it just makes them feel worse about themselves really mm -hmm. because yeah so um so yeah so many great things um one thing that i actually did want to talk about and i was hoping we would have time so i'm going to try to squeeze this in as kind of our maybe last thing we can talk about a little bit is you have talked about that you believe that there is a good use of appropriate extrinsic motivation. And I want to talk about what does that look like when extrinsic motivation is used appropriately? Ah, oh, I'm actually kind of glad you asked that. <laughs> I am. I'm a behavior analyst. So, you know, at my core, I do believe there's time and place for the use of extrinsic motivators. Um, because sometimes kids don't want to do things that we are asking of them and they don't even have to have a neurological um, disability or disability in general to require that. So I'm going to give you a real life example of in my own life and then I'll just kind of like generalize that. So I have a child with um, some medical needs and so toileting has been a further journey and so there's some requirements from her medical team that she used the washroom on an interval. She has to go, to, she has to use the bathroom 
do you think a six-year-old wants to go to the bathroom when she's told to go to the bathroom when it's a high interval of demand being asked of her? Of course not. There's nothing intrinsic. I can't sit with a six-year-old and explain the biological. I mean, I have, but I can't, I don't want to scare my child. So yeah, there were times where we've used extrinsic motivation to help her be more participatory in the requesting to use the bathroom, right? Um, so when you you can choose to go in two minutes or five minutes and mommy, I'll go in five, great, I'll set the timer. When the timer goes, if you go, then you go enough times and then you can earn. And for her, it was, we have a coffee shop in the neighborhood. She loves to go and have like a cake. That was really big for her. So it's special, it's different, it's super social. It's her and I doing it together but it's not enough for me to praise her. And she has no intrinsic desire to do this. In fact, she spent her whole life being told to do this. So she, the intrinsic um, value in doing this doesn't exist for her. So she does need some extrinsic. The key for me with her was a fade out plan. She doesn't use a, a system of reinforcement now. She's um, as she gets older and older, she's more participatory in the planning and we're making sure what we're asking of her is appropriate and reasonable and fair. So let's take those principles to children in a school setting, right? Um, the biggest, some of the biggest mistakes we make with reinforcement is kind of what you alluded to. Oh, I've heard that children with ADHD respond really well to token economies. This kid won't listen. I'm going to use the token economy. Um, and I, ha I have to go to the school-based team and say, hold on, why are you using a token economy? Well, I want this child to sit still when it's a lesson. Well, let's unpack that. Can, is that a reasonable expectation? So I think that's where reinforcement's been given a bad rap because it's been excessively misused. We've just put it in as this like blanket strategy where we're going to get kids to be compliant, right? Um, but the reality is, especially with the neurodivergent population, many kids don't want to do things that are, you know, um, they are able to do, you know, they're part of growing and learning. And so reinforcement can work. Reinforcement works for a variety of reasons. When we understand what a child values, so I'm not going to put in what I think that child might want, but I'm going to put in place something that motivates that child. Okay. Um, I'm going to have a really clear system for how I'm bringing it in and an even more clear system for how I'm fading it out, right? I'm not just going to have it in one day and it's gone tomorrow. There has to be a really clear reason. And we have to understand why we need to make sure we've done the roots first. We've done the investigation, the assessment, and we understand um, why. So you, I'll use dyslexia as an example, because that's an area, you know, of interest to you. So there are drills, you know, if you're doing Orton Gillingham, there are drills and things a child has to participate in in order to learn those early fundamental skills. That doesn't mean the kid's going to want to do it and the kid may never want to do it. Um, in part, maybe because they've spent a lot of time in, in um, avoidance, right? So they've learned that it's just easier to avoid things that are hard, right? And we can make things easy, but we might need to motivate you extrinsically to get to the table until things become intrinsic. That is the goal, right? The goal is for children to develop the intrinsic motivation 
um, for the things we're teaching. Here's where I'll say um, the mistakes are sometimes made, especially in neurodivergent populations. So autism, I'll use as an example. We used to think reinforcement was the way to teach social skills, right? Like, oh, look, you answered a question. Good job. We don't do that. Many of us don't do that anymore, right? Um, I might teach you the nuances of conversation. How you choose to use them is, is up to you, right? It's you're a person. And when I'm teaching, I may use um, extrinsic motivation to help you engage with me, but I'm not going to use it for you to always do that skill, right? That's again, where reinforcement's been given a really bad reputation. Cause it does not look yucky. Yeah. Like it looks super yucky when you see a kid on a, I, I can remember seeing a kid on a playground once in a school and he had like a clipboard and he had to go ask three friends a question and his EA would give him, this was just a kid I saw at a school. Yeah. And he would get like a sticker every time he asked a question. It was so yucky. There was nothing authentic or natural about that. But you see, when people see that, they see, they say, see, reinforcement's bad. Um, reinforcement is integral in feeding. Um, we children who, um, you know, need to learn how to chew food may need motivation to learn how to chew food if they're 10 years old and still on pureed foods. Right. So there's, there's, Reinforcement is definitely key for neurodivergent learners potting, like learning to toilet. Um, children with disabilities respond much better to extrinsic motivation because they don't always necessarily um, cognitively understand why they need to be out of a pull-up or a diaper, right? Um, I think we're naive to think that all children will respond um, to intrinsic. So does that, am I? Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a lot of thoughts too. So I Yeah, no, I love it. I love it because it also, I mean, some of it I think about like with the feeding one. Mm -hmm. We had a student who hated to have to put something in his mouth, just put it in the tube. Like I don't I don't want to practice chewing. But it was when it was paired with sort of a natural reinforcer of well, if you do this quickly and at this time, then you are going to participate with all of the friends out at recess that is really, you know, important to you. And, oh, you don't have to go to the nurse to do it. You can just drink the the beverage here in class. So it's kind of building in those, I guess I, I see where like, we can have the extrinsic but I think as much as we can build in the intrinsic, like, I guess when the extrinsic is then leading to the intrinsic. So like, I was just thinking about with him that he was motivated to be with his friends as much as possible. So when he knew that he, that he didn't have to go to the nurse to get the tube feeding, if he would just drink his beverage in the classroom, then he was much more willing to participate and um and then he would also like eat more at re at lunch with his friends because then he didn't have to go finish it in the nurse's office before he could go play like mm -hmm. just the natural part of things um so can i jump and then, in? yeah so well and then i was also thinking about like yeah. the the like orton gillingham i mean one of my complaints about the the programs is that they tend to be so boring yeah and so it is like you 
do, I definitely see that where even if a child is intrinsically motivated to want to learn, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm intrinsically motivated and yet <laughs> I don't do it every day because it gets boring or because something distracts me or whatever. And I do see where adding in the extrinsic can help keep us on track to what we also want to do. So one thing that I like to do when I'm using extrinsic like that is I try to pair it with with the child's ability, like natural desire, like they they want to learn how to read. And we kind of uh, talk about that and and why you you know want that. And then we also talk about. Um, OK, so to help you stay motivated to get through this program, which might feel boring, what you know, and then we have a conversation about extrinsic motivators that might help them to accomplish their own goals of mm -hmm. learning how to read and making reading easier for them in class. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I I like what you're saying. And I agree, there's sometimes where it's a, just a matter of um, getting a kid to do something that's important that they don't, they're not currently motivated to want to do. And a lot of times, and I think, I guess I just always want to keep in mind, is there a way, and there, I don't think there always is, but is there a way to, to intentionally build the intrinsic motivation as part of it? Because like with Orton Gillingham, when the kids start to be better at reading, their intrinsic motivation yeah. all of a sudden is there that they're like, oh, wow, like if I keep doing this, I'm going to get better and better. They see that. Um, even like with my kids um, recently, at the beginning of summer, they were going to swim class and they were like, I don't wanna go. Mm. <laughs> well, at first it was, I really wanna go. And then they got there and they started to panic because it was a new environment and there was a lot of pressure and it felt stressful. Yeah. I was like, okay, after we're, after we're done with this, we're gonna go get donuts. Um, Cause the donut shop right next, right next to it. So it was like, after this, we can go there. So that like um, kind of just helping them get over that hurdle of having an extrinsic motivator that then, because then it very quickly, like that was just once and then they started to get more comfortable and then it became about the joy of swimming Yeah, that I knew that they could find. But I also was trying to very intentionally not say, you'll get a donut if you go to swim class. It's after swim class which is a given, well, we'll go get donuts. So it's not like, I don't know. I always, I, I'm always trying to avoid, I guess I'm trying to avoid too much extrinsic when I can, and yet I do see its value. But um, do you use it, right? Like yeah. all those examples, even the, um, the student who needed to practice swallowing, right? And was preferring. The value piece, you gave a great example of the value piece. When we use motivation, let's find out what children value most. He valued being with his friends. But in reality, that is ultimately in a very clinical way, like saying, first do this, then you have that. You're withholding this thing he values as long as he sort of does this first. And you're working with him. You're being collaborative. You're trying to create this conditioned environment that's more motivating and all those beautiful things, right? But at the end of the day, you're pairing something he doesn't want to do with something he wants to do. And it's like, 
let's first do this and then you can have access to that. Right. Um, until it's just like, I'll just do this so I can, you know, like, it's just becomes more natural, like for your children, like first we're going to go to swimming, then you're getting a donut. Eventually they stop asking for the donut. You stop offering the donut. Um, for some children, maybe that stress still stays longer. And so we say, you know, like every two swim classes, you'll get a donut, right? So the plan faded out, but I think we use motivation to shape children's level of participation and things that they don't desire more frequently than we realize, right? This reinforcement sometimes viewed as like, good job, here's a cookie, right? Like we're all so far away from that now, but we use motivation to shape children's behavior all day long in school, in home. And it's not a shameful thing. And I think that's where I get frustrated is that I think some social media has really put on parents this notion that like everything needs to be intrinsic. And you just need to be socially connected to your child. So if you are a good enough parent and your child's a happy enough kid, they'll just do things. But that is not life. That is not children, neurotypical or neurodivergent. Many children, for a variety of reasons, will require extrinsic forms of motivation to do things they don't see value in, right? Right. So when they don't see the value and you're Orton Gillingham, as a student saw value in learning to read, that became what motivated them. That's the goal, right? Right. But that's, you know, like maybe I want to be a doctor one day, but I don't like chemistry, but I got to do it in order to do the biology side of things I really like, right? Yeah. So maybe I say to myself as, as a co- college university student, first I'll study for my calculus, you know, my chemistry test, then I'll go do something I enjoy. That's extrinsic. Right, right. So I, I mean, I could, so I think that's the piece I say. I think it's misused. I think it's misunderstood. And I think that is what some people take and promote and it really confuses parents, but <laughs> right. And, and the key in it is, you know, your kids love donuts. You you've taken the time to understand what your child values. Education teams often don't, they just assume yeah, kids will like, and like maybe a kid likes doing like super random, unusual things. So I don't know, value piece is important for reinforcement. I know I went over, but I, I, I agree with what you're saying. But I think what you're saying is extrinsic is part of daily life for many of us. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have to be careful with all of it is anytime we're up in the branches, we've got to make sure we, you know, we earned the branches and we went through the other steps that Mm. we can, but if we're just starting at the branches, then we're missing a lot. And, and I love, I love that visual. um, And I love the, a lot of what we're saying here is that that understanding that yes, sometimes there are things that kids have to do, and the extrinsic helps when the intrinsic is not there. Um, I I I always worry about too much extrinsic kind of killing the intrinsic that is already there, but a lot of it is coming from that. It's still the same thing where they're going straight to the branches and not doing any work deeper. And I think that that's one of those things that we just keep coming back to is understanding the why, understanding what's happening at the root, understanding that 
that underlying everything makes all the difference. Right. And so I would say as a parting thought around that, you know, um, cause there is a lot of people that will say extrinsic takes away the opportunity for something to become intrinsic. And I think if we're asking kids to do things that are not important to them or they value, absolutely. Cause they're never going to see that's the mistake made in autistic communities for many, many, many years. I will tell you, this is how to be a whole body listener in class. Maybe I'm never going to be a whole body listener in class. Maybe I'm always going to be a kid who moves at the back of the room. So you can try and extrinsically motivate me, but it's really, it's not where I'm at. Like, so I'm never, so that's right. Like in the branches, not understanding the root of what's going on for that kid. That's why full circling this back to ODD and PDA and, you know, just neurodivergent children. And when all these labels help us understand what we're seeing, but it doesn't explain all the whys. We still have to know where those learning challenges are, where those lagging skills are. We still have to do the work with that child to assess what they do understand and what they don't. We know that you're struggling enough to meet criteria for autism, ADHD, oppositional defiance disorder. People are saying, ooh, maybe there's some pathological demand in there, right? But we still have to do the work with the, with the roots. We still, as adults can't then make these blanket statements about strategies without understanding right. where each of those kids is starting from. Right. Yeah. Sorry, I went over. <laughs> it's all good. Okay. Hey. We will end with that parting thought. Thank you so much, Michelle. We have loved having you on. Thanks and hopefully everyone listened to both of those because they were awesome. Thank you.